as a kingdom people, um, and we continue uh, to, to look forward with eager anticipation all the fruition of all that Christ has to say um, about this, this newer and better place, the final death of death, um, and, uh, and what good news that is for God's people. And so uh, this morning as we come to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, we are going to see um, a simple love and a genuine love. Simple and genuine love. This is going to be an idea that we're going to uh, see as we as we approach a passage that is probably um, for uh, for for a number of you in this room very familiar, um, if not from Mark's account, perhaps from one of the other gospel accounts. Um, and so, uh, Rachel Stacy is going to come and she's going to read our passage uh, this morning. And so, Mark chapter twelve, twenty eight through thirty four. Um, if you guys will follow along with us, um, and then we will um, we'll pray and, uh, and get started. Hey, let's share a podium this morning. This is it. Good morning, everyone. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, here we go. Um, okay. Can you hear me? Um, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are, the right, you are right in saying that God is understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God, and from then no one dared ask him any more questions. Amen. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, just our time together to worship your name this morning. We pray that um, as your word has been read, that it might now by way of your spirit penetrate our hearts um, and that we might indeed uh, see this morning our great need um, and your great grace. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus is um, at this point in the final week of his life. That's been uh, kind of this idea that we've uh, made mention of each of the past few weeks as he has entered into Jerusalem and the cross is uh, is imminent. It is it is right before us. Um, and over the past few weeks, as he is in Jerusalem moving about, we have seen a number of conversations uh, between Jesus uh, and, and other individuals, right? And if we can say anything about those conversations that Jesus is engaging in over the course of these last few days of his earthly ministry, we can say this, that there was at the center of many of them controversy, Right, that there was oftentimes this um, this this controversy that was being brought before Jesus in an effort to trap him, to test him. We talked a few weeks ago about how really the heart and the posture by which the people approached Jesus reminds us a lot of what Satan does as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, or just prior to the beginning of his earthly ministry, at the beginning of Mark when he tests Jesus. It's all in an effort to uh, derail his mission, right? Um, to, uh, to, to, to distract him, um, to uh, lead him into early demise, even in many cases. But we've seen again and again each week uh, that Christ is uh, accomplishing the will of the Father on his time, right? Um, that he is going to the cross, but he will go there when uh, the time is, is right. And that time is indeed approaching. This morning, whereas we look at past weeks and we see much controversy, we see in this passage none. There is no controversy. In fact, uh, we're going to begin in just a moment by contrasting the characters over the course of the past few weeks with the scribe that we see in verse 28. But I want us to start because a lot of what we're going to be talking about this morning from this portion of Mark 12 um, challenges maybe our hearts of worship, right? We're, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, worship and, and that which Jesus uh, and ultimately the Father desires from his people. We see worship being the desire of God uh, from his people. And I love what John MacArthur has to say uh, about worship. I want you guys to listen to this. I want us to, 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 to read this, to lean in, to absorb this, and then to consider it as we work our way through 
uh, Mark 12. John MacArthur uh, says this, that worship is simply glorifying God. That worship is simply glorifying God. And that this means that there is nothing required of us that cannot be done as an act of worship. So, so let's, let's simplify that, right? Let's begin to peel the layers back of that statement uh, so that we might better understand it as we go into this morning's passage. Uh, worship, glorifying God, and there is nothing that is required of us that cannot be done as an act of worship. And so you think about the way that we talk each week uh, about our time leading into this corporate fellowship, this time of worship together. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't so much begin um, when we begin, right? But it begins begins as we come into this door, our time corporately together. Now, our worship outside of this place begins every morning when we wake up, right? That everything that we do, based on what MacArthur has to say here and what Jesus is going to expound upon in Mark 12, is an act of worship. And so the way that we engage over the next 35 or 40 minutes together uh, in Mark 12, the, your posture, okay, is an act of worship, Right, So we don't desire to be a people that would come in and just to uh, kind of take a back seat in terms of engaging in our time together. But we want to be uh, worshipful. We want to be leaning in. We want to be attentive in all that we do, be that engagement with various creeds that we say in the beginning, uh, submitting our minds and our hearts to the authority of God's word as it is read as our call to worship, as we sing. Right, This isn't a passive posture, but it's an active posture. It's an act of, uh, of obedience and worship to the Lord. And that looks different for different people. So a couple of ways that that functions in the life of our fellowship. Every Sunday morning at 1030, we begin this, this fellowship time in which we drink coffee together and we conversate about our weeks and, and what's going on and what's coming up. Struggles and those things that we are uh, joyful in, right? We talk about these things together. And all of that is intended to lead our hearts into a posture of worship. They are worshipful. Right? And so if that's the way that you engage your time on Sunday morning as we begin, then that is worshipful. Now, if that doesn't lead your heart into a posture of worship, then we've got to begin asking, what is it that does? And whatever that is, let's begin practicing that. I was talking to Walt and Jacqueline and Mac uh, just a few days ago, and we were talking about uh, how various individuals demonstrate and display worshipful posture. And I was reflecting on my time at New Orleans Baptist Seminary, the Atlanta campus, uh, where I went to seminary and graduated about, I mean, like two years ago. Not that that matters at all. That has no value in this story at all. Uh, But while I was there, one thing that we did each month was that we would go and we would worship in chapel together. Now, one thing that was unique about the North Georgia hub of New Orleans was that there were various schools that were present on that campus. And so New Orleans had a undergraduate program. They had a master's program. There was a Korean school that met there on campus. And so once a month, we would all go to chapel together. And it was wonderful to see the way that the various cultures represented engaged in worship to the Lord. You typically had um, a, a lot of uh, the uh, the undergraduate students and the graduate students who were, uh, you know, primarily Primarily American, right? Come into the the sanctuary there and conversate with one another and discuss. And then you would have this other area of Korean students that would come in and they sat down and they opened their Bibles and they began to read as a way of preparing their hearts for worship. All of that to say this, that what we do is an act of worship. And this morning we see what God desires as his people offer their worship and sacrifice to him. Does that make sense? This is where we're going. Okay, this is what we're going to be talking a lot about this morning. But let's begin by observing the contrast in characters based on what we see in verse 28 and what we have observed back to the start of Matthew 12 and even before that. Let's look at verse 28 together as we observe this contrast in characters. Says this that one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Now, if you'll remember last week in our time together, we saw Jesus engaging in this conversation with the Sadducees about the resurrection. And he left them uh, undoubtedly speechless as a result of what he had to say. And so we get this picture of this scribe who has been observing that which is taking place. 
Verse 28. And seeing that, he answered them well. Okay, having observed Jesus' engagement with the Sadducees and that he is answering their question well, massive understatement, right? Uh, he goes up to Jesus and he asks him this. And this is in verse 28. He says, which commandment is most important of all? Of all the commandments, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, which is most important? Now, between this scribe and those who came before him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, and the elders, we can say that there is a noticeable difference in terms of their tone. This is affirmed in verse 33 as Jesus tells the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom. Okay, and so there's a, there's a noticeable difference in posture. There's a noticeable difference in tone in verse 28 between this scribe and those who had come before him. Now, this is really interesting, especially considering the question that he presents to Jesus. Why? Well, because as a scribe, his primary job was to, was to copy, to record, to, uh, to make uh, more of the scriptures in terms of their, their, their number, right? To copy them over so that there would be more and more copies of the scriptures available. And so this scribe who presents this question to Jesus does so in a most informed way. Why? Well, because he is, if anyone is, all too familiar with the 613 commands categorized by importance that the Jews sought to live by. He has recorded them. Right? He's recorded them again and again and again and again. He is aware of their presence. And yet the question that he presents to Jesus is of the 613, which is most important. Now, those within Jewish culture had taken these 613 commands and they had broken them down and categorized them by importance. And so you had ones that were more important in terms of their practice and application. And then you had ones that they deemed to be less important important in terms of their practice and application. Does that make sense? And so we see the scribe approaching Jesus and asking him, based on the authority that he has displayed in this conversation with the Sadducees, just prior to what we see in this passage, of these, what do you say is most important? We've got a lot of them, and man has certainly interjected their opinion in terms of importance and practicality, but what do you have to say? There's a real contrast in terms of their tone. And it appears, based on what we can observe from verse 28 alone, it appears as though there is an authentic commitment to know what is true and what is good from the scribe in Matthew chapter 12, to which we must say that this here, verse 28, is an act and work of grace, right? We see that this is a, a work of grace in that grace is a requirement for what we see in this passage, the interest, the posture, the tone possessed by the scribe as he approaches Jesus is a display of God's gracious work in his heart, even leading into this question. How do we know that? Well, let's look to what Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Primary passage being verse 18. All right, our primary verse is verse 18. Listen to what Paul has to say beginning in Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Now, let's step outside of this for just a moment and let's look ahead. We're going to talk about our failure and Christ's fulfillment and how that leads us into a transformed heart, how it transforms our heart and it continuously transforms our heart. We're going to see over the course of this passage that all that Jesus calls his people to submit themselves to is an impossibility in and of themselves. That's what we're going to see. But one thing that we notice from Ephesians chapter one is that upon this work of regeneration in a hard heart, 
there is a new desire produced that is able to submit oneself to the desires of the Lord. Does that make sense? Let's go back and let's read Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 15, and I think it'll make a little bit more sense. For this reason, Paul writes, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Okay, so we're, we're going to talk about our inability to, to live that which Christ calls his people to in just a few moments. Only we see, based on what Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter 1, that there is a point in which the desires of God for his people are made reality. Right? That they are able to begin living this type of life. Paul Paul acknowledges it and even draws attention to it in Ephesians chapter 1 as the church there in Ephesus shows love toward one another. We continue on. We've got to continue on. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now listen to what Paul has to say here. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Right, the fact that there is a, a contrasting posture and tone between this scribe and those who come before him is evidence of God's initial work in his heart. I don't think that we can go too far in saying that. I don't think we're assuming too much by saying that based on what Jesus has to say in verse 33. It is an act of grace. In which God produces a desire not to suppress the truth, which is man's default as a result of sin's entrance into the world, but to know truth. Did you get that? Right? That it is a work of grace that the Lord accomplishes in the hardened hearts of men who have rebelled from God and his good desires and intentions for his creation. It is an act of grace that there is not this suppression of truth, but this genuine desire to know that which is true. If you're here this morning, let's make it really practical. Okay, if you're here this morning and you are seeking truth, know that it is because God has moved in a unique loving and compassionate way in your heart and in your mind. That we are not naturally by nature truth seekers, but we are truth suppressors. We are truth deniers. This is the consequence of man's rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. God desires that his people would live in and pursue after truth by way of intimacy with him and his word. Only we naturally because of sin, suppress that. We reject it. We flee from it. And so as we come here and we observe this contrast in characters, we have to say that this is an act of loving compassion from the Lord that has even produced this conversation and leads you to be here this morning. Right? This isn't an attribute of the Lord that we see displayed in Mark chapter 12 that it is then set aside, laid aside. But it's one that continues to manifest itself in the hearts of people. Right? And so, if we stop right there, if we just stop there, we can say this. Right? That as a result of God's work of grace in our hearts, we ought to let me think about this. Let me think about this for a second. We ought to approach this time together with joyous, uh, with joyous hearts, with, with worshipful hearts. When we talk about what MacArthur had to say in the beginning, worship is simply glorifying God. It begins with this realization of his work in our hearts. This acknowledgement of our hardness of heart. And then this gratitude that flows from this idea that God is working in an incredible way to transform said hard hearts into hearts of flesh that beat for him and desire that which he desires for his people. So we begin with this contrasting character. We move on. And we're introduced next to 
the Shema. We're introduced to the Shema and, I think, an exposition of the heart of God. Listen to what uh, Jesus has to say next. There's this question that has been presented to Christ. Which commandment is most important? Now, we're going to see. We already heard it. Rachel read it for us. The man asks for one command, and Jesus presents him with two. And so I think that it's super interesting the way that Jesus ties what could be somewhat confusing together by pointing to the oneness of God, right? He points towards the the singularity of, of God, God being God alone, one God, three persons ruling eternally over all things without competition, He says this, beginning, and this is a a, a quotation from Jesus that finds a home in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. And so Jesus begins answering his question by pointing to the Shema, which we'll talk more about what that is in just a minute. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5. Now, Deuteronomy, for those who are not familiar with what is recorded there, is actually a collection of of speeches that are attributed to Moses before Israel entered the land that the Lord had promised, in which we see Moses challenging the people. He doesn't want to see God's people repeat their past mistakes. And so he calls them to respond to God's grace and mercy with love, faithfulness, and obedience. And so as Jesus begins in the Shema, one thing that we have to ask is, what is the Shema? Because this is a very Jewish concept. Okay, And we, for the most part in this room, are not Jews, I would imagine. And so what do we need to understand about the Shema? Why does Jesus begin here, answering this question from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5? Well, Shema means to hear and to obey. Right? To hear and to obey. And it is a very simple summary of every claim that the Lord makes on the lives of his people. It's comprised of a portion of Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 11, and then a small excerpt from the book of Numbers. And it's a really, really simple statement. It's, it's as our friends at the Bible Project have said, marvelously simple. It is challengingly simple, terrifyingly and life-giving in its simplicity. It functions like this. Now, as a Jew uh, who who was seeking to live in accordance with the commands of God, you would have said Shema, recited the Shema twice a day. And it begins in Deuteronomy 6. It begins with this this exaltation of the oneness of, of God. It functioned essentially as a pledge of allegiance of sorts to God that would, as a result of its repetition, right, repeating these words and seeking to live in light of these words, would exclude allegiance to any other gods. It's a call toward a singular focus and a singular worship. We learn through the Shema about who God is. We, we learn through the Shema what God is like and what he desires from his people through its practice. And thus it makes perfect sense that Jesus would begin answering this scribe's question with this quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here's what we learn about God in and through the Shema, that God created man and woman to worship and enjoy him. That God created us to worship him and to enjoy him. And that despite the fall, this is still God's call for his people. 
Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, Numbers, they all solidify this point for us. To which, in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see the people of God respond, yes. Okay, God in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and those passages preceding and following, invites his people into covenant relationship with himself. And he tells them exactly what that's going to mean for them in terms of practice. Here are my expectations for you as you enter into covenant relationship with me as I have extended it to you. Live and worship me. Love me alone. That which Jesus recites there as he begins answering this question to which the people of God respond. Yes, We affirm this covenant and commit to live our lives in faithfulness to you, to love God and to live lives informed by love and commitment to God, right? To to love God with one's whole self. This is what they're agreeing to. This is what they're entering into, which we see is the only right and acceptable response to the covenant love of our God. And then we begin to see the intent of the law. We see that there is mass confusion that has broken out among God's people. And thus led to the question that the scribe asks. Let's read beginning uh, at the end of verse 29 through uh, verse 33. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. The second is this. So Christ has tied these two things together by beginning with the the existence of God and God alone and his desiring the heart of his people. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what could have been confusing is tied together by way of what Jesus does in Deuteronomy 6. What he says as he cites Deuteronomy 6. Oneness that's going to flow into two manifestations, right? Let's continue on. There is no other commandment greater than these, Jesus says. To which the scribe said to him, Right, right? Like, you're right. Teacher, you are, you are right. You have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all of the heart, and with all of the understanding, and with all of the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is. And this is a massive statement that the scribe makes in light of what Jesus has had to say thus far, which is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so follow with me here, okay? Christ begins with the Shema and answering the question presented to him. And in answering the question that has been presented to him, it becomes clear that living the letter of the law as opposed to living the intent of the law had become a major issue for God's people. Remember how many laws there were? 613, categorized by man in terms of importance and practicality, by which the scribe then asks Jesus, which is most important? And in this and through this, Christ draws their attention back to that which has been stated from God in the beginning, Deuteronomy chapter 6, to love God. And then he connects it with something that we're going to look at in just a few minutes from Leviticus uh, chapter 19, this loving one's neighbor and how these, this, this vertical and this horizontal relationship connect with one another. It's become clear that living the letter of the law had become a primary focus as opposed to living God's intent for his instruction to his people. Jesus says that obedience summarized by the Shema is practiced by way of the vertical and horizontal element of the God glorifying life. And he says essentially that this is the way that we were created to live, right? That we were created to live, and we say this each and every week, right? That we were created to live in intimate fellowship with our Father, and that we were created to live in transparent and genuine relationship with one another. It's very simple, only we see that it becomes incredibly complex and complicated as a result of sin. 
right? And our affections now being diverted in 30,000 different directions. Christ is calling the scribe back to the simplicity of that which God desires from his people, right? What does God desire? Well, he desires the heart of his people, worship from his people, and a God-informed love for one another. We see this vertical relationship, and then we see this horizontal. That's the best way I've, I've, I've ever heard it described, the way that we see what Jesus is talking about here. This vertical relationship in terms of our relationship with God and the love that we offer to him, and the horizontal relationship that must flow from a, 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 a reconciled vertical relationship. Here's one thing that we're going to find as we address now our failure and Christ's fulfillment. In Mark 12, the central theme is the faithfulness of God in light of the failure of the people. This is the way that God has created his people to live in community with him and with one another. Only we know that because of sin, this has been broken. And it's broken to a degree that you and I are incapable of fixing it. Relationships horizontally or relationships vertically. And so we see God's call to offer themselves wholly to him being one that God's people and we fail in. In the passages surrounding Deuteronomy and Numbers, we see a continual downward spiral of sin as a result of sinful and hard hearts. We see a failure to fulfill covenant from God's people and our need for forgiveness and new hearts. In Mark chapter 12, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, in Numbers, throughout the entirety of Scripture, from beginning to end, we see this story of the faithfulness of God. It's all about Him. right? It's all about Him. It's all about His faithfulness, what He is committed to, right? working, will, for his good pleasure, for our good to the glory of his name, we see our failure in light of the instruction of Jesus when presented with this question concerning the most important commandment of all. We, you and I, all of us, we do a poor job left unto ourselves of offering our hearts to the Lord, right? We do. We simply do. Our affections are divided. Right? We, we allow things and even crown things, certain things, king in our lives over God. Right? Our relationships with one another are oftentimes broken. We see that, that the, the ideal is a sacrificial relationship. In terms of our horizontal and our vertical, right? That that's the ideal, that it is self-sacrificing to live in covenant relationship with God is to live a self-sacrificing life, right? To live in relationship with one another in the way that God so desires is to live a self-sacrificing type of life. Only we fail in living self-sacrificially, do we not? We're selfish. You are and I am. Right? And so through this, this great, this is the greatest command, and we are left like grasping for hope because we can't live this. Like we don't live this. We fail to live in covenant relationship with God as we ought, and we fail to live in self-sacrificing relationship with one another as we ought. And so, what is the hope of this call to live God's intent? Well, it's Christ. Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. In Christ, we see obedience to the Father's design for relationship. And we see obedience to the Father's design for relationship with Him and with people. We see submission to the law. Perfect submission from Christ to the law, the letter, and the intent 
Christ is earlier on in his earthly ministry accused in the Sermon on the Mount of, uh, of, of doing away with the law. And he says, I haven't come to do away with it. I've come to fulfill it, right? Both in its letter and in its intent, which is incredible. Like Christ fulfills in, in both where we fall short in every. We see Christ's care for the poor. All right, we see his, his care for the deaf and the blind, all in Mark chapter 19 alone. We see from Christ an exercising of a genuine love, which is his heart's desire. That's God's heart's desire as we relate with him and with one another. This genuine love. Care for those of the covenant people and the nations, the oppressed, the broken, the scandalous, and the scrutinized. Jesus fulfills in all of these areas. And we see in Christ that the love that the Father desires is indeed sacrificial. I want us to look briefly at Hebrews chapter 10. Why don't you turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me? We're going to read 10 verses in Hebrews chapter 10 that help us to understand this idea that in Christ... We see the love the Father desiring is a sacrificial love. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. The author writes, For since the law has been a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. And so we're talking about the sacrificial system by which the the scribe present, asking this question to Jesus, comes to this realization. What you are saying Jesus is more important than than all burnt offerings and all sacrifices. He's beginning to see that which the author of the Hebrews affirms later on in Hebrews chapter 10. That these these offerings, these sacrifices, this blood that is being spilled is incapable of truly cleansing the hard hearts of men. That sin continues to rule in their lives, but God has a plan. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin. Every year, we're confronted with our need again and again and again and again. And if you are leaning on yourself and your righteousness for relationship with God, you are undoubtedly confronted again and again and again and again with your need, right? It says in verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently... When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and burnt offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. But why? We're living out the intent of the law, aren't we? Or or we're living out the letter of the law. We're failing in the intent apparently as well. And so what are we to do? Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered in according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified. Right? We have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We see this realization that is brought to the scribe in verse 33 is fulfilled by Christ upon the cross. This is much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this is the end of the sacrificial system. One offering Christ made for his people. 
as the sacrificial servant gives completely of himself in life and death as our substitution. If that's not a word that you enjoy, man, you ought to, <laughs> okay? It just sounds really good. It feels really good to say. And theologically, like we hang our hats on it. Christ in our place, substituting himself, his life, and his death for you and I. And as a result, righteousness for God's elect. Righteousness, the gift of faith and favor in the sight of the Lord, not as a result of what we have done, not as a result of our sacrifices, but of His. Right? That it's all about, from beginning to end, His faithfulness and this gift. And then, here we go, back to Ephesians chapter 1, strength to begin living a life of holiness. That's what Paul has to say to the Ephesians, right? The Lord's grace and work in your heart is evidenced by way of what we hear coming out of Ephesus. Your love for the saints in and of themselves, the, 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 the work that Paul praises in Ephesians chapter 1 is an impossibility for them. But because this work is present and active and moving, it's evidence of the Lord's grace and work. And so I want us to, 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 to wrap our arms as we begin to close our time together this morning around a, a few truths before we kind of move into this, this, last, this last point. And that is this, that God's love for us enables our love for him. Okay, God's love for us enables our love for him, right? And, and the ways that we have failed historically and epically, we see that now there is the opportunity for faithfulness to the glory of his name as a result of the love that he has first laid on us. This is what John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, All right, We love because he first loved us, Right? God's love for us enables our love for him. I love the way Jonathan Edwards discusses and unpacks this idea. He says this, of love offered to the Lord, that a true love of God must begin with a delight in his holiness. That a true love for God must begin with a delight in his Holiness, right? To love God is to, in turn, be loved by God and to find pleasure in who he is. That's the best way that we can summarize it. Let me say that one more time. To love God is to be loved by God and to find pleasure in who he is. And so, man, the well never runs dry, right? This, this story that we tell together every week is inexhaustible. We cannot, we cannot exhaust it. Right? We cannot overemphasize it. We can't say it too many times. We see God's love for us enables our love for him. The second thing that we notice is this, that our love for God determines our love for our neighbor. Which is the second element of what Jesus presents in his answer to the scribe. Our love for God determines our love for our neighbor. Do you notice what we're not saying there? We're not saying that our neighbor's treatment and behavior directed towards us informs our love for him. That's not what we're saying, right? That it's not what our neighbors bring to the table. It's not the way that they feel toward us or about us that informs our love for them. But instead, it is our love for God that determines our love for our neighbors. That's why we speak so passionately about things like racism and sexism and classism and all the isms that you just want to toss out a window, right? Because, because it's so anti what we see God calling and desiring from his people. In Leviticus chapter 19, where the second portion finds its home, we see a neighbor being defined as both one of your people as well as the resident alien. Why is that important? Well, because this is one of the most radical and significant elements of the teaching of Jesus. Right? Redefining a people's understanding of who their neighbor is. Your people, right? 
the church, let's put it in our context, right? The fellowship, the church universal, which if we're really honest, perhaps this is you, sometimes loving those that are, that are closest to us is the most difficult, right? Well, here Jesus says, based on what we see in Leviticus chapter 19, 18 and 33 and 34, that it begins with your people and then it goes over to the Samaritans and even to the Gentiles. John continues in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. We read verse 19 just a few minutes ago. He says this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, then he's a liar. Wow. (laughs) Like that is... That is a huge statement, is it not? For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, this is what John writes in 1 John chapter 4 verse 21. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Man, like this is super simple, right? This is this is really clear. This is not confusing at all what God desires from his people. We see a love directed towards the one true God results in a genuine love for people and a living out of his intent for his creation. Let's not be deceived. This is God's intent for his creation that we would live in these types of relationships together vertically and horizontally. He opens wide the doors by way of his torn flesh that we might know God, dwell with him, right? Rest in his presence and assurance of the things to come, that the relationships that we enjoy horizontally with other people might be transformed and informed by way of what we see Christ saying here. Christ brings us back into this life, okay? Christ brings us back into this life, the life that we have spurned as a result of our failure to live in submission and obedience to God's word. Christ rescues us out of the wrath that we deserve for that rebellion and brings us into fellowship. And he transforms our hearts that we might begin living Ephesians 1 verse 15 type of lives. The last thing that we notice is the transforming heart. Look with me at verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, this is going to be hard for you to imagine, (laughs) right? But after that, like all the questions just stopped, right? This is incredible. Like after this, like, Anybody else got anything? Like, no. Like, nobody else seemed to have anything else to say after that. In fact, we won't see it uh, for the remainder of of Jesus' earthly life. What we see from Jesus to the scribe in verse 34 could be best described as a follow me statement. What we see amounts to a follow me call from Christ to the scribe. We see the love of God at work in the heart of the scribe leading him into this conversation being the same love that continues to work equipping him for a life of worship. And so let's translate that into present context and culture. Right? Love, love, we see here the love of God at work in our hearts by way of the gospel leading us into a conversation, a confession, repentance, and faith, being the same love that continues to work in us, equipping us for a life of worship. It doesn't end, right? It does not end. But the love of God continues to manifest itself in our lives, working, transforming us into the image of Christ. Lives lived in submission and sacrifice and worship to our king. We see this dynamic shift in the motivation behind obedience in this passage. And we're closing our time out right here. Along with this realization that this call towards simple and genuine love is central to the heart of God. 
And so we ask ourselves a series of questions as we do each week. First, do I approach God's word and his son with a heart that reflects a sincere desire for truth and obedience? Let me say that one more time. Do I approach God's word and his son with a heart that reflects a sincere desire for truth and obedience? That's the first question that we ask ourselves. The second is this. Am I desiring deeper love, faithfulness, and service to God and others resulting from a transformed heart? This is what the gospel produces in us, right? This is what God's spirit produces in us. This desire for deeper love and faithfulness and service to God resulting from the transformed heart that comes about by way of realizing Christ's service, love, and faithfulness to us. I want to close with this quote. I can't even remember who it was from, but it's not me, so I didn't plagiarize it because I just told you. It says this, if your love for God is not expressing itself tangibly in deeds of love for others, then ask him to change your heart. If your love for God is not expressing itself tangibly in deeds of love for others, then ask him to change your heart. And so I think that the question, the ultimate question that we have to ask this morning is what is the condition of our hearts? Are our hearts alive, regenerate by God's grace and his work, the substitution of Christ and his fulfillment of the law in our place, thus extending and gifting his righteousness to you and I so that this vertical relationship that we are incapable of reconciling might be made well? And in turn, the horizontal relationships that we live community with one another transformed? Is that the posture? Is that the position of our hearts this morning? That's what I want us to consider. That's what I think that Mark 12 calls us to and encourages us to as we approach approach the table this morning. And so we'll consider these truths and ask that the Lord might continue to refine our hearts to the glory of his name.